Are you ready? You're ready. Okay. This is Patrick Russell. I'm interviewing Brody Hand for the first time. This interview is taking place on November the 5th, 2016. We're in Charleston, South Carolina. This interview is being conducted by the Making History Project. Why don't you tell me, uh, Brody, how this all started? Where were you born? Back the part that I didn't understand the question. Where were you born? I was born in Trinity, Texas. All right, when was that? April 8, 1920. Okay, and how big is Trinity, Texas? Oh, it was at that time probably uh, 500 people. And what is Trinity, Texas known for? At that time, it was probably a farming and fishing because it's on the Trinity River. Okay. And that's where the people located. And that, that time of the year, uh, boats could go up the Trinity, all the way up to the Trinity River. There was docks, locks in the river just north of the city of Trinity. How big was your family? Well, at that time I had two brothers, Bill and Carol, and of course my mother and father. And uh, what were you doing before the war? Were you in school? Before the war? We uh, lived, we moved from Trinity in 24, and we moved into Anahuac, Texas. At that time, the only way you could get to Anahuac was go to Galveston, catch a boat from Galveston to Anahuac. There was no roads or in leading in and out. It was just open prairie, no fences to keep you from going any which way you wanted to go. But the closest town at that time was Devers, or Liberty, Texas. And we went by boat to get there. My grandfather lived in Double By, they called it, which was just north of Anahuac and between Anahuac at Galveston. So that's why we probably ended it up there. Although my brother had had a stroke or he had polio and he was being treated in Houston. So actually I was told by my mother and father that the reason we went to Anahuac was to be closer to Houston, although it was a lot harder to get to Houston from Anahuac than it was from Trinity to Houston. Okay. And so when the war started in 1941, what were you doing? I had finished high school in 39, and I was working part-time uh, at that time, the oil boom came into what was later known as Monroe City. They wanted to 
locate in Anahuac. And at that time, Umbel Oil Company, which turned into Exxon, was looking for a place to build a little colony of workers. Well, I think couldn't get satisfied out of Anahuac, so they moved out to the oil field, which was in Monroe City, later named. And uh, that's uh, where we worked at oil field labor at uh, different times. And then we saved enough money, a friend of mine, Jack Caves, to go to college, and I had a scholarship in football or in track, which also helped me get into school. Well, to get to college, you had to go uh, two or three hundred miles to get into a college. All the way you could go was thumb ride or walk part of the way and get there. At that time, at 39 and 40, I went to college Marshall at 41 and 42. I had spent time in ROTC and had uh, been three years in it and uh, I also had passed the entrance exam that they required. So when I got notice from the government to appear into get in service, well, I was close to Shreveport, Louisiana, so I thumbed the ride over to Shreveport and took the examination, and actually I failed because my eyes were too bad. I couldn't believe it that, that I laid it on to being studying too much because I wasn't that good a student to begin with. But uh, anyway, that, that was where I really got upset about not getting into service because I would have been a commission officer uh, uh, there and uh, went home. And uh, my father was on the board. Uh, and uh, we, all us boys, thought we better get into service first because we needed to, to make an example of the rest of the men that had to go. But, uh, the, uh, I went to Houston and volunteered as I walked upstairs to get uh, interviewed. I saw a big sign, join the paratroopers, and that's what made my mind up. I said, well, if I'm going to be in the Army, I'm going to be in the best. So I signed up for the paratroopers. And when was that? you remember the but, year? That was in uh, October of, uh, of 42. All right, and then 
Um, you enlisted into the paratroopers, and did you end up going to Fort Benning? Where did you go for training? I went to San Antonio to first stop, and being in Texas, that's where the big uh, uh, Army bases were in San Antonio. And uh, being as I had the training all right, and uh, I was put in charge of the group that was going to uh, join the paratrooper. We went on the train, the first stop was Houston. The boys jumped up and they said, well, we're going to go get in the telephones and call home. I said, oh, no, we better stay on this uh, boat, I mean, on this train. And uh, they went on in anyway, but they got back in plenty of time because the train was held up anyway. And uh, we went on to New Orleans. New Orleans, we were on a troop train. Before we got there, they were serving breakfast. And we decided half of us would go eat with the troop train because we didn't have any place to eat on our organization at that time. And Half of us got up to the troop train and they divided the train. They dropped half of the train back on the tracks and half of it went with the troop train. So there we were in New Orleans, nowhere to go, nothing to do. We got back and stayed the night. I had to send in a telegram that's showing why we weren't on time and why we would miss the trains and all. And from there on, we got all of us got together that night because they were staying all at the Red Cross place. And we was able to go on to Blanding, Florida. And that's where the 82nd was started, it was in Blanding. And uh, we were all raw recruits that had ever been in anything and in all. And that's where we started. And how was basic training? Was it hard? At that time, I had played uh, basketball a couple of years in uh, uh, college and uh, run track, I was in good shape. And um, at that time I didn't drink as much as uh, later on. And uh, training really wasn't that hard for me. Uh, a lot of the uh, uh, troopers I had not run, had not lived in, uh, the places where they could run or where they could camp out at night and uh, do things like uh, we had in uh, South Texas. So uh, 
uh, I was way ahead not only in years, but in experience that uh, I automatically uh, had. And what else would be qualified but to be of age? And they had my records and they asked me to uh, fall in a group of men and march them off and back and forth, and which I did. But the uh, officers in charge decided that I didn't have the commanding voice that a sergeant or training would have, and so I stayed a PFC. And what specialty did you have in the Airborne? Did you have one? Pardon? What specialty did you have in the Airborne? Specialties are really uh, wasn't a great deal of, of training uh, mostly running and uh, exercises, and uh, uh, we had the, the standard equipment that uh, uh, probably was on every Air Force base or, or Army base at the time, uh, climbing walls and going under machine gun fire and all those kind of things that uh, everyone took, but uh, we had a 26-mile hike uh, to qualify. At that time, the Japanese held the record on a 26-mile hike, and some officer decided that the American people could do just as well as the Japanese. So that's what we did. We had that 26 miles. And that was one of the things that you had to do and make without falling out, fulfill a pact to stay in the paratroopers, to make that. And we all did, of course, to make it. Were you involved in demolitions? I wanted uh, more than uh, we had uh, demolition officers come down and give us uh, lectures and show us uh, demolition equipment. And uh, as far as getting any actual training at that time, I did not get anything out of just watching and seeing and what would happen and what primer card was and how bad TNT was and uh, CD, uh, which was a putty type uh, demolition that you could raise a piece off and light it with a match and cook your meal over it. It, was, it had to have a booster to really explode and do any damage, so we, we did pick up a little information there. What weapons were you qualified to use? 
as an airborne paratrooper? I had uh, mostly at that time the O3, which was was uh, a single shot, bolt action, 30 out six at that time. Uh, later, we got the M1, and uh, of course they were all packed in the car and. Uh, all seen in some kind of uh, jelly type uh, packing, and uh, we had to boil the bell, belts and bell, uh, bowls out and uh, get rid of all the grease and all. And uh, later on, uh, after uh, uh, probably a year or more, I was promoted up to a corporal, and it called for a Thompson submachine gun, uh, which I carried and which was really a proper gun or better than a rifle at close quarters, which actually we were at all of our firing and against the enemy action was close. So actually my Thompson was a beautiful thing to have along. And there came a time where you deployed overseas, right? Big pardon? There came a time where you deployed overseas. Overseas? When was that? That was in Christmas of 43. Uh, 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 and uh, I was at that time having problems with having flu and then other things that uh, school boys did and had, and I became sick in Camp Shanks, New York. And uh, you do not go on medical call when you're ready to go overseas, and so I couldn't go to the medics. I had to bear it out, and. Uh, I told the company commander, Milam, that uh, I was sick and I had the flu or something. He said, well, there's nothing we can do about it, just go ahead. And it makes you so weak that uh, everybody had, in our group had got on the ship before I got there. I had to drag my A bag, B bag with me. And uh, when I got there, well, the captain was waiting there. To, he says, well, he says, hey, let's see, you made it. I said, yes, sir, I said, well, I'm going to make it. And he said, well, the Navy will take your equipment, and you go on up to the top deck to the hospital ship. So uh, I went overseas in the hospital bed, and uh, 
at that time, Captain uh, was the uh, Thompson uh, was a medical doctor at that time, and uh, so at, all you could get was sulfur drug. It, we uh, made it uh, in ten days to Belfast, Ireland. We docked there, and they put me in a ambulance. Took me to the hospital in Belfast. I stayed in the hospital three weeks, two weeks, and I was discharged. And I told the doctor I was going to be called on to do a lot of running and exercise, being as we were paratroopers. And he said, well, you'll never do it. And I said, well, if I can get enough exercise while I'm in the hospital, I'll make it. He said, well, I'll carry you over for another week then before you can go back to your company. So that's what we did. I stayed an extra week, and I run every day and tried to get back in shape for it. When I got to the company, the uh, first sergeant uh, was there to meet, of course. And, uh, well, that was uh, Funk. Sergeant Falk, and uh, he checked me in. He said, before he goes, he says, now, we're going on a run in tomorrow morning. And uh, he says, you can't keep up, I'm sure. And I said, well, I might be able to. I don't know. I wonder how far you're going to run. And uh, so we took off the next day, and he told me, he said, well, you, when you get Played out, just sat down on the side of the road, wait, and that's what I did. Uh, sat rolled down. When they came back by, I jumped in the line again, and they, the boys all right, told me, I said, don't get in line with me. You you laid out too long. <laughs> so that gave me a rise about being out. But anyway, uh, from then on, I made it all right. I did, didn't have any problem with been on. And then uh, you did some training while, did you go to England? Did you make it to England? Made what, sir? Did you, from Belfast, did you eventually go to England? Belfast, we went to Ireland. I had, uh, we trained there in Ireland for, oh, seemed to me like a month or maybe more. And uh, we had a good time there because we did a little, very little exercise was mostly involved. And uh, it was any that way. So uh, it, uh, from Ireland, we made a short stop and, uh, uh, Scotland on the way, and then we went on into England. And uh, we went right to our camp in Nottingham. And uh, of course that was an uh, enclosed uh, castle with the 
brick wall all the way around it or you could get out you could go any place so we were pretty well confined there uh, except for our ingenuity of getting out which always a good soldier had lots of that you can't keep a good man down so at night we slip out the back and crawl over the wall and go to town and drink beer and have a good time. I got into a young lady there at Nottingham and we become good friends because I had first night uh, had all the money we could carry around with us. And I gave her a pound note. I didn't know how much money a pound note was. And the next night I got out again and she met me with a handful of money. I said, what in the world is that? She said, well, you just don't know how much money you gave me when I gave a pound note. I thought, well, I had to get her home. But she said, oh, that was way too much money. From then on, we would meet at the pub and she would have the beer bought and have it on the table waiting for me. So I thought, well, that's the girl for me. So we enjoyed drinking beer every night that I could slip off and get in there. And of course, she knew what time I was coming and all. And uh, uh, the pubs in England were an institution. They're owned by the government, and uh, they are a family affair. Everybody goes to the pub, women, children, all, and even the dogs are welcome. And uh, everybody has a good time. And uh, we sang little ditties and all of it and all. Let me give you a little one. In Ireland, the streets are filled with glass. And every time a young lassie passed by, you could see her little rinky dinky, papa linky. If you think I lie, come to me with your town and see the same as I. Now there goes all more verses and I have to say I've had got to the other verses I can't show them. But we enjoyed being in the pubs in England, which did. All right, and then there came a point where we have D-Day D-Day, right? And we moved up uh, two or three days ahead of time, so that was probably around the first or second of June when we got on the bus and moved us up to the airfield. And of course, uh, you know that uh, D-Day was supposed to be the fifth, but uh, the weather was so bad that. Eisenhower had to call it off. So we went to six. 
But uh, we had a real good time uh, waiting there because we stole all of the Air Corps bicycles and rode around and got out and got beer and all we wanted and came back in and all, which was not known at that time that you could do that. But a paratrooper always figured no meant after you try it out and see if it's no. So that was the way we got by with a lot of stuff that we did. I remember coming home one time on furlough, stopped in Houston, was having a wonderful time dancing, and I had two girls, one on each arm, and the MPs walked up to me and says, Soldier, how about your pass? Well, you got a pass? I says, it, you've been notified a paratrooper is over the hill? No. I said, well, then after the fight is over, then you can see my pass. He said, oh, you drunkard, get on down the road. <laughs> so we didn't do anything. Well, you know, BS uh, gets you further in this army than anything else. They say ES is good, but it's not better than BS. <laughs> you know what that stands for. <laughs> All right, so take me to the night of June 5th. Sir. Or the morning of June 6th. You had to load up and, and go somewhere, right? Go. On June, the morning of June 6th? I did understand. For June 6th, did you participate in the D-Day drop? We were dropped in... Uh, uh, it was a terrible situation. The fog had settled down uh, over our drop zone, you might say, and the uh, C-47s we were jumping uh, scattered. Now, the ordinary fly in uh, triangles of three, and we were on the outside uh, of the triangle of the third ship. And uh, so each plane pulled off to the side. And we were, later found out, we were 18 miles off the drop zone, which is just a second or two in an airplane to ride. He, he wasn't that bad off, but uh, at least it put us way out. Uh, it took us uh, uh, most of the uh, scattered were out uh, and trees and forth. Uh, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Bell and uh, a part of the uh, jump situation fell in a little town and they were killed. and. The group I was with uh, was out of town, uh, and I got the four 
of the troopers together and we started back. Uh, of course, everybody said, well, which way we got to go? We, I told them, I said, well, we're going the way the airplanes went. That's home. They were headed home. And I said, that'll take us to the beach and we can find out then where everybody else is. So that's what we did. We started out that way and headed, headed with them. And you were in uh, Company C of the 508 at that yes, point? Yes, Yeah. All right. And you were left with, when you landed, you only found four of your group. Well, we were scattered it out. Uh, of course, Captain uh, uh, Milan broke his leg at a jump in England, and Captain Silver was our company commander of C Company at that time. And uh, so uh, our group was supposed to have been on the Meredith River, and here we ended up, took us three days or more, to get to the Dole River, which was uh, on the other side of the river. And uh, we couldn't get across. At that time, they'd flooded that whole country in there, and uh, which uh, grass and all was growing in. We didn't know just where the channel was, but to us standing there looking at the river, it looked two and three hundred feet wide. And uh, we did couldn't figure on swimming that far and getting our equipment with us or anything else. So a group got together and uh, we stayed there. And um, it uh, a couple of the officers was with other ones that got up there ahead of us. And they were in the same house, and uh, Lieutenant Lavender was a, a C Company officer, and uh, we had another Lieutenant uh, Lavelle. Uh, he wasn't a C Company man at all, but anyway, it was mixed up group. You, they had not only mixed up the uh, planes with different sections, but different planes had crossed back and forth, and you might be with 504 group, or you might be with 101st, uh, which was supposed to be down close to the beach. And our, our job was further out. But uh, at that time, I was uh, diminished uh, Captain Silver came by and asked me uh, if I'd uh, be a demolition sergeant, and uh, I told him, well, I never studied it. And he said, well, I'm going to send you to the English uh, school there, and you'll get three days of, of uh, training. So that's what I did there. And so when I jumped, uh, I jumped uh, demolition equipment and all at the place to blow a bridge on the Dover River. And uh, of course, uh, when you jump 
into combat, uh, you have a job to do. No matter what officer or what non-com tells you otherwise, you tell him your job comes first. And that's what happens. You can tell any officer, and he'll admit it, that you have a job to do, you go ahead. You don't stay with him because he wants you to do. So we went on till we got to the bridge there on the Dover River. That was and your mission? That was our mission. We didn't know which bridge, but it was a bridge, so that was it. Okay. So what did you do with that bridge? What happened? We uh, had that join the group at that time. We got there ahead of them. And uh, we went up at night and put the uh, demolitions uh, and planted them and uh, took us all a uh, big part of the night to do that and and uh, put the demolition wires and, and wired up uh, primer card and, uh, and our firing TNT and all together, uh, it would have been a good blow. And uh, then we uh, went back before daylight, and by then uh, is when we run into the officers and the other group, and uh, they wanted to know that. And uh, we were getting our group was getting food from uh, French people at night. Uh, we'd run out of food by then. And uh, so one of the men could speak a little French. He went in to, to get the food lined up and get that. And uh, lo and behold, here comes the German walking down the road. And uh, there was a stone wall that we were behind waiting. And I just stepped out with my Thompson and told him to hands up and come on, let's go. And I put him behind the wall and told the other men there to to tie him up with a rope or wire or anything they could get their hands on. And uh, later, another one came by. We ended up with three POWs there of the Germans. So when we got our food together, we went on to the main group, and uh, I turned them over to Lieutenant Lavender. To, he says, uh, well, go out and take them care of them. And uh, I told him, no, sir, I can't, I can't shoot a man down. He's just standing there because he's surrounded. He said, well, in that case, I guess we'll have to carry him with us. I said, well, let's do that, then, unless you want to go out and shoot him. <laughs> and uh, so we went on. And uh, we got up close to the bridge uh, the next night. He asked me to 
take us uh, the group up to the bridge. Maybe we could get across. So uh, we got up close to the bridge and stayed at uh, another French house. And uh, he set troopers out on the roads uh, to guard for the night and uh, made it through the night all right. But next day, the Germans was walking down that road and one of the men took a shot at him and they didn't kill all of them. They said there was two or three of them, but they, they got away, one of them did. And uh, so that wasn't long till the Germans advanced on us. And of course, they, when they came, they had a, a tank destroyer or a tank, or I think it was mostly uh, an old French uh, cannon at all. It, it was stripped down model. It wasn't a complete tank. But anyway, it was enough to blow that French hut apart that was made out of rock and bricks and all. And uh, we didn't last long. We we uh, fired all, of course, uh, most of the ammunition was 03 and 45. So, and that's all we had. And so the Germans that we had captured asked and hollered to the the German officer that they won't, we wanted to give up. So Lieutenant uh, Lavender made the range for us, for us to give up and uh, the Germans quit firing and quit, uh, well, they'd killed a few, but not, not too many. We'd, we'd got down on the floors, you know, below the bricks and below the concrete and all that. We weren't all that many killed and um, it uh, took us guards and uh, marched us to a small village right next to the bridge and uh, put us in a, a barn-like structure that had no windows or anything in it, no way of getting out. So they locked us up, but the next day we marched out of there and headed, of course, out of France and towards Germany. So at that point, you became a prisoner of war. And did you, you ended the war as a, a prisoner of war, correct? No, you're not a prisoner of war until you are classified and notified that you get a tag, 73D5, was my German number. And uh, that, until then, you're missing in action. Just what the, the Americans send to your home, missing in action. So actually, uh, if you're going to escape, that is the time to try to get out is while you, before you're POW. And uh, from then on, they have more 
control over you and better uh, situations uh, than uh, for your uh, considered a POW. Okay, and um, so where did they take you next? Well, I was in so many different camps. Uh, when we first got back, I was able to name a whole lot of them. I think there was probably eight or nine or ten or more. Uh, the Germans had thousands of prisoners of war camps. They had camps for the Jewish people. They had camps for the friendly people that we called the different names too. And uh, they had uh, prison war camp for officers. Certain grade officers stayed in a certain grade camps and so forth. And uh, so you could very well go through any town in France or Germany or anywhere else that the Germans had taken over without a camp of some sort being there. They had them by the thousand. They had them for women. They had them for uh, the young boys that was in the military that weren't old enough to get into service, but they were getting training. And they had just all over. They were organized, I'll say that for the Germans. They were well organized. They, they knew how to carry on a war. When you first got captured, was that a real terrifying moment? First got captured, beg pardon? When you first got captured, was that a real terrifying moment for you? I don't think so. Uh, it wasn't sudden. It was over a period of time we knew we couldn't hold out. We knew we were running out of ammunition. And uh, it was not really, uh, we didn't understand what being a prisoner was going to be like. Uh, and we'd didn't hate uh, it so much, you know. We were disappointed. There were troopers crying. There were troopers cussing. There was troopers of all type and all uh, that each individual had to accept it to himself the way he felt. Were you ever worried that the Germans wouldn't treat you as nice as you treated those three that you captured. We are actually worried after we'd been a prisoner a few weeks or months that the Americans or the English would catch us on the road or catch us in a, a railroad station or a church or somewhere and bombing us, killing us off. Uh, at one time we were 
what they called 40 and 8, or 40 prisoners and 8 horses was in those old boxcars. And of course they had us in there by 60 uh, more or less. And the only way you get any rest was get your buddy to stand up and where we all were standing and packed in there. And you'd sit down and get between his legs and sit there and he'd take up your room and his room and you could get a rest. And then after you rest, well, you came out from under his legs and he got in your legs and sat down. And that was the way we made it along. Uh, uh, see. We got shot up one time, uh, C-47s and uh, the old uh, 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 I can't think of the name of the airplane now. Uh, came by after he shot us up, uh, and uh, we got out. They, of course, we were locked in. The Germans had to turn us out, and uh, everybody took their shirt off and put POW, made it a, a sign out of it on the ground there, so that the uh, uh, Americans recognized we were prisoners of war, but that was always a problem from then on. You recognized the Americans, or the English was your enemy, as bad as the Germans were. Did you receive any uh, awards or medals for your service? While I was a prisoner? No. Oh, be before that? No, I, I had a, in training uh, in San Antonio at ROTC, I tied for second place with the rifle range, uh, and I had a medal that I could award uh, all good training in the paratroopers, and I wouldn't do it because I probably had to fight everybody in the whole company to do it. But anyway, uh, that was the only medal I received before the war was over. Okay. What about a Purple Heart? Oh, yes. Later, I was able to get a Purple Heart for uh, the wound I received uh, the morning that uh, the guard shot me. And it was a minor wound. And I was able to, one of the boys took his kid out and uh, patched him up. And so it wasn't a big problem. But I received that. And then I received a Purple Heart for uh, Russians bombing us one day, and uh, actually it was not shrapnel from the bomb. It was shrapnel from the uh, rocks and, and uh, it blew it Pepper would be good with it. That was also a bomb. So. And 
you were um, captured in June of 44? Yes. And then how long until you were liberated? All right. Ten days, tenth hour, and ten minutes. I had everything was ten, 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 ten. It was eleven, almost eleven months that I was a prisoner of war. Yeah. And you went, um, you served in a uh, coal mine in, in Czechoslovakia? Yes. Okay. Uh, of course, we worked in different things uh, as we went back through France and uh, in Germany we did other jobs. And so, actually, at the end of the war, you might say, we ended it up, the Americans had pressed us back. As they advanced, we went back further. So we knew we were winning a war. And uh, I was uh, working in a coal mine uh, with a Czech, and he was a very nice fellow. He helped me a lot. And uh, it caved in on me one night. And uh, I was very lucky. I was by my cart uh, that I had to fill with coal. Uh, and uh, before you came up, you filled that cart up with coal before you could come up. So the cart really saved me from getting crushed. But I did get banged up pretty bad. And uh, that's uh, where the boys uh, held me on the table and the German uh, doctor uh, opened the wounds and all, and uh, they had to hold me on the table to, to do it. And uh, that was all, no medicine, no uh, pain pills or anything. In fact, they had nothing but white paper that they used for wrapping wounds with and all. And that's what I had there for, oh, probably uh, two or three weeks of that. And uh, actually, it was getting worse. Uh, it was spreading, and uh, all the doctor could do was uh, freeze the, the leg and mop it out and wrap it up. So the Russians were getting awful close to us in Falkenau, Czechoslovakia. And the company commander, which was very good to us at that time, said he's going to send me to the German hospital. So he named a German guard to go with me and take me to Duisburg Hospital. In the meantime, the boys 
at the, had decided that wasn't going to work because we were buried a soldier and I was working night shift and I was able to go with the group that buried the soldier that died. The next day they wanted to take off and go to the funeral. Well, they did get out of bed. They lay there and they told Germans they weren't going to work that day. And so the Germans hollered, rush, rush, rush. And then nobody wanted to get out to go. So the German guard just shot one out of the bed. That settles. There was no striking as a B.O.W. They found out right quick, you worked whether you wanted to or not. But we was also able to then bury him. Uh, and we took him up the hill to, and uh, we buried him by the other man. And uh, later on, uh, I was uh, talking to different people and uh, I notified them that I knew where there was two soldiers, POWs, uh, located if they wanted to check it out and see if they had anybody else had uh, notified them because they were very interesting in trying to get men together that were killed and nobody knew where they were or anything and uh, of course they're still doing that. That's a good program that they are trying to return everybody to their family. And uh, I told them where we were and where this little cemetery was from the town. And uh, he said, well, we'll look into it. And I never knew whether or not they ever found out that nobody notified me that they had or they had or I'm sure they did, though. I'm sure somebody else uh, had already told them about it before I did. What was the name of the town? Uh, Falkendall. Uh, of course, the Germans changed every city. And it made uh, a terrible situation trying to find. I, I had a brother that school and at the time he was teaching school in Germany for American students and uh, I asked him I told him I said I'd like to go over there uh, some year and uh, try to find uh, the old camp and, uh, we uh, got as far as uh, Pilsen, uh, Czechoslovakia, and uh, the Czechs were just a little bit rowdy on whether they were German sympathizers or whether they were American sympathizers. And uh, we could not get 
uh, we did get, maybe that was a better word, uh, where Falconel was. And uh, of course, later on, we understood and found out that they had changed the name of the town and it wasn't Falconel at all. Some other name they've changed it to, I don't remember now. But I did get to go back to the camp. Uh, and generally, how did the Germans treat the prisoners of war? Did you see a difference between Americans and other types of people or, or not? The Germans are wonderful organization people. Even their own people are organized. Of course, we were work groups, but as our president says, the black people did not associate with the black people, with the whites. Now at that time in 36 and 30s, 40s, black people in Texas were niggers. And that's what they always reminded us of, that we were super white people, that we were not to be with the Czech people or get with anybody else. That was, of course, to keep us from trying to escape and uh, see through the history of the German people that they were so organized that they had camps for every different organization. Jews, the, the queer people, the uh, officers were in different camps. Uh, sick people were. Uh, everybody had camps for thousands of camps in the town. And outside of treating you like a worker, did they treat you any differently being an American soldier or even a paratrooper? Did you notice anything in that regard? The American soldiers, I, I say uh, we did not have the training. The Germans were wonderful soldiers. They had been through numbers of wars and uh, when they took the Polish over and took the Czechs over and uh, they were true soldiers, uh, better soldiers than the Americans were because we had no experience, no idea of what was going to happen or when it happened or how it happened at all. And uh, they were true uh, soldiers. Did you see any Russian POWs? Oh, yes. Tell me about that. We, the Russians did not sign the Red Cross 
uh, and the uh, uh, citizens of uh, Germany did not sign up for the Red Cross situation. Uh, the Germans accepted the wartime situation of a Red Cross and the Americans were treated real good compared to the Russians. The Russians were captured by the thousands. They were there in the large camps where uh, everybody met uh, different situations and they were groups peeled off to go to this place or go to somewhere else and work or go somewhere and work in the hospitals or do something else. The, uh, the Russians were there by the thousands. I got to be a friend of a Russian. Uh, we happened to meet there at Bavar fence. Uh, they were fenced off different from us. And uh, he uh, made me a cigarette case holder that would hold two or three packs of cigarettes out of a canteen that he had found and picked up. And uh, he wanted to sell it to me uh, for uh, cigarettes or anything he could get, of course. And uh, I gave him cigarettes for it and uh, I brought it home with me from that Russian. But they were slept outside. They did have a great deal of no Red Cross parcels, nothing but what the Germans wanted to give them, and that was a very little soup, mostly water. We called it dandelion soup, and that's what they made of it. Uh, have you heard of the phrase, war is hell? Did a what? Have you heard of the phrase, war is hell? Have you heard that phrase? Uh, can't understand it. Oh. Have you heard the phrase, war is hell? Holland. No. <laughs> that war is hell. Have you heard that phrase? Oh. Well. War is hell, but uh, there's other things that could be classified as more than war is hell. It's hell to be a, even here in the States at different times that you can make it your hell or you can make it that you will control yourself and it won't be hell. There was troopers that were confined that had, over a period of time, decided that their mother and father had passed away. He decided, this one man, 
that it was no longer any reason for him to live because his mother and father were dead. We tried to talk him out of that notion, but we couldn't do it. We tried, tried. He held that he was going to join him. He ran and jumped on the fence, and the Germans killed him. Uh, so, what is hell? You can make it whatever you want to, and not get into a religious program. As a result of your experience, did you bring any type of um, lasting effects back home? When I got home, uh, what happened to me? One day I was in prisoner of war. We uh, was three days uh, before uh, Patton could get back and get the word out and send the trucks to pick us up. So uh, a, a Catholic priest was uh, rolling a little wagon down the road with nothing but unleavened bread and wine. We ate all of the love bread, a can of bread, and uh, drank that wine and got pleased and read drunk. We stayed drunk for three days, waiting on the trucks to come pick us up. They picked us up and took us to the first airfield. And uh, at that time, I had a, a friend of mine who was a lieutenant with Patton's group that had been on the path that Patton had sent a group to get his son-in-law and brother-in-law out of a prison. If you read that part, well, you'd remember that. And he got captured. Uh, this group, uh, this lieutenant, stayed in my cabin. I was in charge of the little cabin outside of the hospital. And, uh, of course, I put him by the window where there was nobody else wanting to stay. Because when they started bombing Nuremberg, that window would not stay closed. You jumped and got the doors and the windows wide open, and then you'd run and jumped into the slit trench and in. So I got back at him a little bit, and he 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 was a nice fellow. He, he didn't mind it. Uh, he didn't try to pull a rank on me, which would have made any difference anyway, because I'd have done whatever I wanted to. But uh, we stopped, got out, waited for the plane. And then, of course, it's uh, always hurry up and wait. And uh, he and I sat down in the cook shack. And the cook says, uh, hey, you fellas want something to eat? 
I had, we told him, well, you might arrive, we want something to eat. He says, well, I can't do anything better than donuts, and uh, I can give you plenty of milk and donuts. So he cooked us some donuts and uh, milk, and we were sitting there just the two of us, uh, eating donuts and drinking milk, and the uh, airplane uh, pilot comes and says, well, we're time to go, we're ready to go. And I told him, well, I looked at the lieutenant, and he looked at me, and he says, go ahead and go then. If you want to go, we're going to stay here. So we did. We sat there and let him go, and we caught the next plane out. So then we flew into Paris. And Paris Hospital, every three hours, they gave me a shot of penicillin. At that time, penicillin was the new medicine that hit the block. Boy, everything, everybody was bragging about what a wonderful medicine, and it was a medicine of a wonder. And uh, I had my butt so sore from three sh every three hours again. They didn't even have to wake us up. They just popped it to us whether we wanted to do it or not. They came by the, after a few days and uh, wanted to know we had a chance. And of course, they were talking to the officer uh, of flying back to the United States or going down uh, and staying and waiting to get a ship, and uh, the officer looked at me and says, you want to fly back? I said, yes, sir. I said, boy, I've had enough of this. And uh, well, he says, okay. He says, sign us both up. We'll fly back. So we flew in, a, they had hammocks, a strong airplane, and we, we were in PJs and uh, jackets, coats, uh, robes, and uh, we went to Greenland, landed and uh, refueled, and flew into New York. And uh, we stayed a couple of nights uh, in New York, and uh, then he moved on out to the officer's quarters, and I lost him then. And I wished I'd have got his address at all for many a time, and I'm sure he thought so too, maybe. Uh, we flew then into uh, I don't know Memphis or Atlanta. I think at that time we stopped at Atlanta, uh, and from Atlanta we flew to. Set in tone, and it happens to when you leave Louisiana, New Orleans, you fly right over Anahuac. And I walked up to the pilot. I said, "If you got a parachute, I'll be home in 30 minutes." If you, he says, "What?" I says, "Yeah." I says, "I'll out out and get home in 30 minutes." And he laughed, probably he didn't know I was in a parachute. 
And so we flew on into San Antonio. We were still in our bathrobe, PJs. Landed. Some lieutenant told a young enlisted man to put us in the truck, take us to the medics. Well, it was fine with us. We got the trucks, bus, and he took us to one part of San Antonio's field. Stop. He says, I can't carry you any further. I got orders to stay on this road and not get off of this road, that you'll have to walk down to the medics, which is two or three blocks down there. And I told him, I says, now, I want you to do something. We are not on sick leave. We are returning veterans from prisoners and from uh, command posts and from veterans of combat. We want to go to the doctor. He said, well, I can't do it. And I was right behind him. I reached over the rest and grabbed it around the neck with a leg hawk. And I says, you son of a bitch, you gonna take us to the medics whether you want to or not. He says, well, I'll catch hell. I said, yeah, you're going to have a broken neck, too, when you catch hell, because I'm going to break your damn neck if you don't take me to the medics. So that's what he did. He turned around and took us to the medic. I says, now, when you check in, you tell whoever your officer is that a rank higher than he is ordered me to take you all. I said, well, that suits me fine. You just tell him whatever you want to. But we were there at the medics and all. That was a problem. A week and less or two weeks, we had left a prisoner war camp where we were ordered to do this, that, and the other. And here we get back to Texas, and they wouldn't even carry us to the medics. I said that was a big change, and we couldn't understand it. I was mad at the Army, mad at everybody in control, and everybody that was in San Antonio. They took us to the hospital. Fort Sam. They put a guard by my bed because they thought I was radical, thought I was out of my head or was prone to do something wrong, and I wasn't. It was just that I couldn't understand why we were treated worse than the damn Germans were treating us at that time. 
And uh, that was a hello, goodbye to the verbs right there in San Antonio. And after you got out of the service, did you have any problems as a result of your service in the war? Uh, we uh, stayed in the hospital in San Antonio all my wounds were healed, and uh, I talked to the different uh, socials, uh, the POWs uh, weren't organized at that time, uh, but the American Red Cross was Salvation Army, and the, uh, of course, the Army officers uh, quizzed us as to where we had been, what we had done, what we got a history there. Uh, I got my medical discharge from the hospital, one pair of shoes and one suit of clothes, and the ruptured duct. You know what the ruptured duck was? That that showed that you'd been discharged from the service. It's a little pin that you could wear. We all called it the ruptured duck. I went to town. Of course, we had to walk town. At, Fort, at that time, Fort San Francisco was, was way out of San Antonio. Walked to town, and I found a bar that would take my ruptured duck and give me drinks as long as I could drink. So uh, my ruptured duck did a good job. We drank that night. I live approximately 300 miles from San Antonio. Where in the hell was I going to get home? Sticky thumb out and ride. It took me two days and a whole bunch of pubs and beer joints and all to get home. Uh, finally, a couple of girls come by and a little the Lopity, and uh, they, we loaded it with them and rode on into Houston, and I got on home from there to ride it. Uh, I was a town drunk for three years. Small town, everybody wanted to buy me a beer. Everybody knew me. I knew everybody in the town. The war was still going on. We had not whipped the Japanese at this time. And I stayed peeled up for months. Three months. Uh, hanging on 
doing different jobs. Uh, they even gave me a job at a little town to be in the post office. I stayed drunk at night and working in a post office full of women. You can't do it. I could. I couldn't hold up. Well, I tell you, it was rough. I quit. I got. Well, there was contractors around, even in a small town. If you was willing to work. They didn't mind if you stopped at noon and took a drink, just as long as you was able to do the job. So I made it month after month, staying drunk every night. Whether I got home or not didn't make any difference. Hell, we'd left, we'd been in, laying down, sleeping everywhere in the world anyway. So it didn't bother me to sleep anywhere. Just stretch out on the grass. Or if I was in a small town, you could always go to a church and find a pew that was padded and you could sleep like a lamb. That was wonderful, staying drunk. I met it uh, encouraged that I meet this widow woman. She was a French woman for Addieville, Louisiana. Not making fun, or really we, I guess we were at that time. We called the French people coonasses. And uh, that didn't go over too good with some of them. And then, of course, most of them thought it as a joke and accepted it. But anyway, this widow woman took a liking to me for some unknown reason. French woman, they did not frown on people drinking. We went to many a town in Louisiana, and we would drink, and uh, next morning we'd have gumbo for breakfast. Nothing better than gumbo for breakfast when you got a hangover. So, lo and behold, I married that woman. Her daughter was six years old at that time. And, of course, she's my daughter now. But my wife stood with me, drank it, because I could, at that time, get on a job and work. I decided to break the habit of drinking every night. Of course, the weekends were different. We could always get drunk on the weekends, but it was different then. And I had a family. And a year later, I had more families. <laughs> so we had to stop and change our lifestyle.
Um, well, it has been very wonderful sitting and speaking with you today, and I, I thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And I, I want to thank you also for your service to our country. Is there anything that you would like to add that I didn't ask? Well, dedicated to the men behind the barbed wire. That would be nice. <laughs>